2: Hey guys, welcome back to Billboard's Soul Sisters podcast. This is Jesse Katz here at the Chord Club. Sadly, without Dara today, because she had to go live her rock star life for a few weeks and is traveling across the country on tour with her band Parlor Tricks. I'm not sure where they'll be when this episode posts, but check them out online. They're super rad, and if you're ever able to go see them live, please do. They put on an awesome show, and Dara gets to shed her normally sweet Clark Kent identity to be a goddamn superhero on stage. Hopefully we'll get her to sing something on this podcast one of these days. Anyway, Parlor Tricks has taken my partner away for the moment, so I will try to manage without her. But luckily, we have an awesome guest to get me through. You most certainly know her by the song that made her a star in the 90s called One of Us, as in what if God was one of us. But she is, of course, so much more than just that. And I have so many questions for her, um, which she's more than gracious about answering. She's performing a stint at the Cafe Carlisle in New York this month, putting her spin on Bob Dylan songs, which would be intimidating for most artists. But no one is more suited to the challenge than today's guest, Please welcome Joan Osborne. Hello, hello, Joan Osborne. Welcome to Soul Sisters. Thank you. I'm very excited to have you here. Oh, good. Well, I'm excited to. I'm excited to be one of the Soul Sisters. Oh yes, you definitely count among the ranks for sure. It's a it's a very
0: elite sorority that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I hope so. Uh, Yeah, elitely inspiring and interesting women. If that makes any sense. Okay. That's what Uh, we're aiming for. Okay. I'll go with that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You you rank on that list with a bullet for me because of Standing in the Shadows of Motown was like a huge... Just powerful moment I'll never forget. I think I came home from college one weekend and my dad was like, "I just checked out this documentary from the library and you have to watch it with me." And oh, I was like, that's okay, so cool dad. that you guys watched it. Together. Yeah, I mean he had already ah. watched it probably a couple of times, uh-huh. but he wanted to watch it with me, so we watched it. And then your performance of "What Becomes of the Broken Hearted had me on the floor. And now I think I've shown it to everyone who will ever give me two minutes of their time, (laughs) like ever since for years and years, I just pull it up and I'm like, watch this. Wow. Thank you. Wow. It's awesome.
0: Yeah. Well, that was was really so great to be part of that movie. And uh, it's so great to get to hang out with those guys. And in fact, I after the movie was shot and came out, they did a little touring and I was a, a guest on some, of their, uh, oh my God. on some of their shows and live shows. So I got to do some live work with them as well. And, yeah,
2: so uh, for anyone who doesn't know, can you just say a little bit about the yeah, Funk Brothers? Yeah, uh, the, the movie is called Standing in the Shadows
0: of Motown and it is kind of a part documentary, part concert film and it's about the Funk Brothers who were the original Motown studio band and played on all those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of classic Motown songs. And I think uh, there's some
2: crazy statistic in the movie about like, they have more number one hits than the Beach Boys, Beatles and Stones combined. Or they, something yes, like they that. do. Yeah. yeah, they've
0: played on more number one hits than, you know, any person you know alive. Yeah. And uh, and really were just, you know, part of this sort of founding musical architecture of this real flowering of popular music in America. I mean, you know, Motown music, it, you know, was so important as like a social force and it was so important musically and so interesting musically. And, you know, it's just a, it's a great part of our American culture. So um, of course, everybody knew about all the the singers and people like Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder and Diana Ross and and knew about Barry Gordy, the the founder of the label, but kind of did not really know the story of the musicians. And I think when the movie started, Starts you kind of catch up to some, some of these musicians and they're like playing keyboards in a Holiday Inn lounge and stuff. So they had kind of not really gotten their due as being part of this huge thing. And that was one of the thrills of being in the movie was to sort of see them get their due and to kind of be with them as the movie, you know, went out into the world and, and they got a really great response from it and, yeah. and started touring as the Funk Brothers and to see people just give them all the love and respect that they deserved was, was really wonderful.
2: And that's got to feel like so much- much respect for you to receive from them to be asked to play with them and participate in that. Yeah, it was that's like an anointment. It was
0: fantastic. Well, it was funny because the first day uh, that I arrived on the set of the movie, they thought I was the makeup girl. You know, they had no idea who I was. <laughs> <laughs> They're like,
2: "Hey, honey, what are you doing here?" Oh you know, what's... and I'm like, "Well, I'm going to sing a couple songs with you guys." <laughs> Do you know how they chose you? How the filmmakers chose you, or whoever was putting you um,
0: You know, honestly, they I said yes to it probably three years before I actually shot it so I think they were just in the process of who can we get to do this and who do we like and uh, they sent me a letter and I was like really the Funk Brothers I'm down Um, so So and then I kind of forgot about it and then it came up again and when it was actually time to shoot it
2: were you well versed in that history already
0: yeah, I mean, I think anybody who's an American kind of has that in their DNA musically, yeah. even if they don't know that they do, because right. that music is so much a part of. Even if you don't directly know a lot of the Motown songs, which I happen to, mm-hmm. and happen to love them, it's so influential in it and has, uh, you know, been part of so much that came after that. That I think we all have a little bit of it in our musical DNA so uh, for sure yeah and of course I'm a huge fan of so many of those artists and you know people like Stevie Wonder and you know just all of them are just amazing so
2: yeah so I don't know much about you from everything that happened in your life prior to one of us and then Mm -hmm. I don't know a lot about what you did in between one of us And standing in the shadows mm-hmm. Those were like the two huge blips On my radar okay. with you So And probably for Nothing a lot of very people very interesting as well. no, 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 that cannot be true But it's interesting I, I, I would love to find out What led you to that first milestone And uh-huh. then how your career then Took this interesting turn From being this huge pop star Who was on MTV for me every day And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden You're performing with the Funk Brothers And you have this like crazy soul voice and uh yeah so let's rewind yeah what happened (laughs) what happened what happened Uh, what what made you um where are you from where'd you grow up uh I grew up in a little
0: town called Anchorage Kentucky okay um which is kind of near Louisville Uh um you know I I didn't actually go into Louisville until I was probably in high school and you know I, I was a total like hick girl who, you know, went to downtown and looked up at the tall buildings it was like, <laughs> Oh my God. You know, I, I lived a very sort of, you know, small town existence and I had have a lot of brothers and sisters. I have two sisters and three brothers, big okay. family. yeah And we would, you know, go run around in the woods. And, you know, it was one of those towns where everybody knew everybody, nobody mm-hmm. locked their doors at night. Mm-hmm. You know, the neighbor's dog would come and, you know, scratch at your door and you'd feed him. And, you know, that kind of a Kind of a place yeah um, and I um, moved. Did your family roots go back deep in Kentucky yeah yeah I've got on both sides my my really? mom's and my dad's family yeah we got uh, you know generations and generations mostly farmers on my okay. dad's side and uh, half my family's
2: from Kentucky too oh really so I like to this oh, yeah what area um, Louisville but then also scattered mm-hmm. around there as well I yeah. know I have family that lives in Beaver Dam now mm-hmm. in Hell's Neck great Kentucky yeah. town names. <laughs> yeah. Nice. No. Um, all right, so they went way back, so yeah. deep Kentucky. Yeah,
0: and I mean, when you say Kentucky, many people think of, you know, the Appalachian Mountains, and there's certainly an incredible musical tradition, you know, coming from there. Yeah, I wasn't really part, you know, that wasn't really part of my growing up. I grew up okay. in a different part of, of the state, um, and it wasn't until later that I kind of um delved into that kind of music and and started to learn about it a little bit uh, it actually wasn't until I moved to New York City I I moved to New York um, when I was about I guess 19 uh-huh. um, and I was uh, went to uh, New York University and I was planning on becoming a filmmaker and I really kind of fell in love with documentary films and okay. I and I that's what I was doing I was a student in, at NYU and thought on, that I was on. gonna be
2: a documentary filmmaker yeah you're you're, you're jumping though I oh to am in I Kentucky oh, sorry. okay no Let's it's in okay Kentucky. but I like to dwell in that's the very cool. beginnings for a moment all right that's cool because we'll get there mm-hmm. um, were either of your parents music- musicians did you have any artists in your family well, my parents both uh, were singers in that they
0: sang in the church choir, and that's actually how they met. Really. And I remember sitting next to my dad in church and hearing his voice and hearing it be this really sort of sonorous, booming voice. And because I was sitting next to him, I thought he had the loudest voice in the whole church, and you know, maybe he did, but I think I had a little <laughs> bit of a skewed perspective. Cause uh-huh. I, and I used to sort of look up at him and go like, "Wow, you know, he's really loud." <laughs> <laughs> what kind of church? Uh, Catholic Church. Catholic Church, yeah. yeah, yeah. Religious family? Um, yes, like up Sunday until, religious? well, up until a point, you know, my, my parents, you know, my mom, God bless her, you know, got all six of us up and dressed and, you know, washed and to church on <laughs> Sunday mornings, um, you know, f- for many years. And then, you know, my, I think my dad really kind of had a, a moment where he became disillusioned with the church and he stopped going and that, that part of our life as a family kind of kind of dwindled away. And mm-hmm. I, I remember. Um, being very fascinated with it when I was a young girl, and wanting to be a priest when I grew up. Really, and, yeah, because I was really fascinated with the ritual of it, and you know, I had these weird, you know, fantasies where I thought I saw Jesus's shadow walking around behind the altar, and uh-huh. you know, I was really into the whole pageantry of it, and, yeah. and
2: you know, I think the it touched something
0: mystical and magical, and you know, in, in my sort of child's imagination. Yeah. Um. But then I kind of realized that you know you couldn't be a priest if you were a girl. And I kind of looked over at the nuns, and I was like, "I don't want to be a nun, man. <laughs> are you nuts? Oh, <laughs> like, I don't want that. A, the clothes aren't good, you know. <laughs> B, it looks like they they have to do a whole lot of work, and they don't get any credit for it. Yeah. So you know, happy. there was there was something. I mean, you know, uh, I, there are nuns in my family, and uh, oh, yeah? you know, there are yeah, there are Jesuit priests in my family, and wow. you know, there there's a lot of deeply religious people in my family history, in particular on my father's side. Uh huh. Um, but you know, our family was kind of the place where, I guess, you know, modernity sort of came in, and uh, and I guess we sort of lost
2: that yeah. that moment. But there was, Do you know, what that moment was for your father when he kind of relinquished. his You know, grasp?
0: I think there was something about how um, he felt like you know the people in in the church. Um, uh, that we were going to, um, were sort of hitting him up for money over mm. and over and over again and, and f- kind of implying that he wasn't giving enough money from, you know, his earnings and that he just started to feel like, like it, it was all a racket for them. Yeah. And what did he do for work? Uh, he was a builder, build houses. Okay.
2: Yeah. And, and did your mom work uh, outside she, of the 6
0: kids? Well, <laughs> yes, for that uh to raise 6 kids, uh-huh. but she also um you know for a long time was a uh, designer. She, she's a very talented visual artist and she actually designed the house that we grew up in. My dad built it. She designed it, drew up wow. the plans. And, what a dream team. <laughs> yeah. And she designed the next two houses that she lived in. And in fact, my older brother became a builder as well and he built the next two houses that she lived in. And, you know, she still is, is around and very healthy, thank goodness, my mom. And she'll come over and, and uh, hang out with my daughter sometimes when I have to go out and work um, for several days. And when I get home, there are all these bits of paper on the, you know, around the house with her drawings as like, still doing it. yeah, just architectural drawings, you know, that she Very just cool. does because she can't help herself. She's yeah. kind of compulsive with it. But
2: <laughs> yeah. All right. So. so the artist thing was in your DNA. Yeah, I think
0: so. Yeah. I think so. yeah. Were you singing in the church choir? Um, Not so much in the church choir. It wasn't until I was in school and like 11, 12 years Mm -hmm. old that I started to
2: sing in school. Okay. Yeah. And that's when you were like, "Mm, maybe I have a voice. Well, I had
0: a really, really good uh, music teacher, this woman, Carolyn Browning. Um, We were lucky enough to have a healthy music program in the school that I went to. Uh And um, she was really encouraging to me. And... Um, she also kind of really pushed us to learn things as a group that were, you know, pretty challenging. We were doing four and five part harmony tunes and, uh, you know, sort of classical choral music and things like that at the age of 11 and 12. And she was kind of like, yeah, you guys can do this and and worked with us on that. So I think that was a very good kind of foundational thing for me as a singer mm-hmm. to learn how to do harmonies and to learn how to hold your part when other people are harmonizing with you. And, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't really... I kind of took that for granted until I became more of a professional and was in these situations where, you know, you're working with somebody and you don't have a lot of time to rehearse and you just have to come up with the vocal part that that works with them and yeah. you have to do it on the spot. And I think working with Ms. Browning as a kid really kind of gave me a grounding in that. So That's amazing. Yeah, and and we did stuff like... We would do, like, madrigal singing, and, you know, our moms would sew us these, you know, velvet costumes, and and we would—we flew to uh, Colonial Williamsburg and sang in the streets of Colonial Williamsburg doing these, you know, five-part, you know, Elizabethan (laughs) Descant uh, songs and stuff. And you were into it. I was into it. I was into it. And, uh, yeah, and the— Ms. Browning was very, as I say, she was very supportive of me, and she even had me do a couple of solo pieces, and uh, we went, uh, she took me to this, like, state contest where you sing in front of a bunch of judges, and they give you a score, and, you know, I did very well at that, so I think I, I think I kind of had some inkling of, like, yeah, maybe I might be good at this, but... You know, you grow up in a little town in Kentucky. It's not like you think you're going to be... There's no point of
2: reference. Yeah,
0: yeah, to become a singer for a profession. It's just, it's not something that... I mean, you... I think the culture down there especially doesn't make it... um, it, It's not conducive to having those kind of, like, big dreams because people will just sort of look at you and be like, oh, yeah, who do you think you are? And, oh, yeah, like, that's going to happen, really. So, you know, I think I just felt like this is a nice thing, yeah. but I didn't give it another thought as something to do out in the world. And, you know, and as I got a little older and I started listening to rock and roll and uh-huh. stuff, you know, of course you have your fantasy moment of, you know, standing in front of the the mirror with a hairbrush and, and whatever. Um, but again, you don't take it all that seriously as yeah. a career option. So, But
2: as you got into high school, were you still singing at school? No, you know, I I kind of stopped doing it when I went to
0: high school. And I think, you know, like like many girls especially I think I had a, a moment where suddenly I just didn't want anybody to look at me you know mm-hmm. I just wanted to do whatever it was that was going to allow me to sort of slink around the corners and not be noticed yeah and uh you know and there's there's a certain shyness that's part of my character that I think really you know that's the that age when that. it really comes out and you just oh, don't yeah. you just want to blend in and fit in and that's all you want so I didn't I didn't pursue it. Um, when I got a little older in high school, I, I was dating this boy who was a drummer, and he was in a band. And you know, his band was going to go to some Battle of the Bands contest, and they were like, "Hey, your girlfriend can sing. Let's get her to sing with us for this band contest." So I did one song with the band at the band contest, and then the bass player decided that he didn't like me and he kicked me out of the band. So so <laughs> yeah. that was my entire wow. high school music career. <laughs> the first slight setback.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny because yeah. a lot of guests have these stories about, yeah, well, I, I was dating this guy in a band and then that kind of led to me kind of being in the band or kind of realizing. And it, I'm starting to wonder if some part of your guys' brains was that you knew you wanted to be in the band. And mm. so it wasn't just that you're attracted to other musicians, which is certainly part of it. They can be mm. very attractive. But also like... That you want I, I to be as opposed that. to... Yeah. yeah, no,
0: I think that's very... Uh, I think that's a pretty logical conclusion to draw from that you're you're drawn to the people who are doing the thing that you want to do yourself right
2: exactly um okay so then you go through high school and you're just kind of being a normal high school kid Mm -hmm. however you can (laughs) but then you make a decision to pursue documentary filmmaking which I'm assuming is not something that people from your town were doing either
0: no I mean I I got into doing um theater and uh, okay. for the first you know I did a little bit of theater in high school uh-huh. and for the musical theater or? um yeah actually one of the one of the shows was a musical and um and I liked that and I liked the people that I met doing it and mm-hmm. it just it seemed like it was a really sort of fun crowd and a fun hang and so when I went first went to college I went to the University of Louisville uh-huh. and um, started to take some courses in that along with other things it was one of the things that I was interested in um, but I went to the theater department there and started getting into this idea of, wow, you know, if you're an actor, you have to wait for somebody to pick you to do what you want to do. I don't really see that working for me. <laughs> so I am I would much rather be the person who does the choosing uh, mm. or who has something that that you don't have to be picked for. So I started thinking about directing and I directed a show in the Little Black Box Theater when I was a freshman in college. And I just, I really liked that. And then I, you know, thought about it some more and I was like you know this theater thing is really fun but I think maybe like one percent of the population in America goes to the theater (laughs) right and yet everyone goes to the movies so maybe this would be something to do in a different arena and I always you know liked movies and liked film Mm -hmm. uh, so I thought maybe this would be a a skill that I could translate to another place and I started thinking about going to uh, a school that had a great film department and that's what led me to apply to NYU and to come here to New York City wow
2: Quite a leap. Had you been to New York before?
0: No, I had okay. not been here. I did not know anyone. I, uh, I found out like two weeks before I was supposed to arrive that I didn't have a dorm room. <laughs> to arrive to and I had to find my own place to live. What? Yeah, they they sort of they were this like sorry was before you <laughs> owned
2: all of the village.
0: Yeah, this was many years ago. Yeah. So uh, so they, you know, ran out of space and they were like sorry, we we're happy to have you here, but you have to find your own place to live. So I ended up getting a room at the YMCA on the corner <laughs> of 30 34th Street and 9th Avenue. Oh man. which was, you know, it, it, I was talking to my daughter about it the other day and just explaining to her that the room was only as wide as the width of the, the very narrow the little single bed, bed and <laughs> the door so that you could open the door to get into the room and then close it again. And that that was it, yeah. you
2: know? <laughs> so, Humble beginning. Yeah. <laughs> and were your parents like, uh, darling, what are you doing up Yeah, here?
3: my
0: mom had some moments where she was uh-huh. just like, okay, well, you know, when you get tired of doing this, you can <laughs> right. you can come back here. Yeah. And um, You're like, no. No, this is the dream. Well, I mean, I loved New York from the moment that I came here. And What era was this? This was in the 80s. And, you know, it still had enough of that sort of grit that people talk Mm -hmm. about the 70s where, you know, New York was just, you know, uh, this sort of glamorously grungy, awful, dangerous, yet exciting place. It still had enough of that Uh going on and... And just New York City in general as this hugely cosmopolitan place to a kid from a little town in Kentucky, it was like landing on another planet. Uh, But I loved it. I, I just I was so excited to just walk down the street and you know, you see people of every race and every nationality and every fashion sensibility and every sexual preference and all yeah. ages. And, and it's it's all happening out in the street. Mm-hmm. And that's, as an artist, I really loved that because you could just sit in a coffee shop and overhear conversations that were really fascinating. And, and then you could sort of make up where that conversation might have gone to in your mind. And, right. you know, such a fertile ground for an artist and, and somebody who um, just likes to use their imagination.
2: Yeah. Do you still live in New York? I do. Yeah. I do live in Brooklyn. M- do you miss those days? Um, or now that you have a kid, maybe you appreciate the, the safeness of
0: it. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I, I, uh, I don't miss feeling like I was taking my life in my hands, walking on the Lower East Side yeah. to go, you know, <laughs> to a rehearsal or something or meet up with a musician that I don't right. miss. Um, and you know, I, I guess I, I'm not really one of these people who was like, oh, it was all so much better back then. You know, I think there's, you know, it's a huge city. You can find mm-hmm. a lot of great stuff going on here. It might not be in the places where it was in the 70s, but it's still happening, you know. And and I may not know where it is right now either because that's yeah. not my life anymore. I'm, right. <laughs> you know, I'm in bed at 10 o'clock because I'm up at six to get my daughter to the school
2: bus. Uh-huh. You know? but, How old is um, she? She's 11. Okay. Yeah. Oh, she's entering those years
0: Yeah, yeah, she is. Yes. Oh gosh, yeah, it's begun already. Actually. Yeah, has yeah. it? Uh huh. Um, yeah.
2: all right. Well, let's circle back to that. Okay. <laughs> um, so, all right. So you come here and you are in the film. School or the yeah. film discipline at NYU? Yeah,
0: at NYU, to okay. school of the arts, studying film, and, uh, you and just also, like throw yourself in it. Yeah, just loving that and yeah. and learning about you know European directors and Federico Fellini mm-hmm. and and uh, Truffaut and you know dissecting Hitchcock films and and I was very also very into the editing process and I loved yeah. finding out about how you know the the order that you receive information in in like a shot and a different shot and another shot is different pieces of information and the order in which you receive that, it changes the meaning of it for you. And I was very fascinated by that. And it actually became a tool that I started using when I was writing songs years later is to you know, where where do you put this verse and where do you put this line in the verse in order to give it a different meaning.
2: Yeah. And it's very important with documentary filmmaking also mm-hmm. when you're shooting tons of footage. And then you got to figure out how to piece that story together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- that's another thing that was fascinating to me was, you know, documentary film. And, you know, I
0: was a big fan of Barbara Koppel and still am. You know, to to go in, into these situations, you meet these people and these characters who are way more outlandish than you would ever be able to make up. You know, mm-hmm. fiction has got nothing on documentary when it comes to just <laughs> unique people yeah. and interesting situations and, you know, fascinating stories. And, you know, that's that really kind of grabbed my attention.
2: Yeah. So were you shooting a lot? Did you have a camera? Yeah. I guess you had access to all that stuff. Yeah, we had,
0: uh, you know, we had these old, you know, these cast iron cameras that they had used basically as battlefield cameras during World War II. And they were hand crank cameras. Oh and you would get a black bag and learn how to change the film in inside the black bag, so you wouldn't ruin your exposure, and wow. you know, learning about that, and, yeah. and learning about cinematography things, and just just all, all the building blocks of of uh, becoming a filmmaker.
2: Yeah, and then so you graduated with that degree. Oh no, I oh, no. Uh, I am a college dropout. <laughs> Are you? Sadly, common <laughs> Yeah. I'm,
0: well, you know, as I I mean, I was putting myself through school, and I was oh, trying to work a bunch of different jobs okay. to afford the tuition and afford to live in the city Mm -hmm. and you know that was a lot Um, but and there was a moment where I had to take a semester off because I just I ran out of money Um, so I was you know working a bunch of different jobs and saving money to go back and I was living um, on the east side on 21st street and this guy in my building who was this kind of cute guy that I had sort of seen in the (laughs) halls he invited me to go out for a drink with him Uh and I was like okay let's go so we just happened to go to the corner where there was a place called the Abilene Cafe. And this was a blues bar. Uh, And this, this was a, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but this was a time when there was a lot of blues music in particular that was happening in the city. Um, So we went into this bar and it was kind of late and there had been a band who was playing, uh, but the band was finished. But the piano player was there just kind of playing really for his own amusement and the handful of other you know, wasted people who are still in this bar. Uh. Um And, you know, my friend said, I will I dare you to go up and sing a song with this guy. If you, uh, you know, if you do that, I'll buy the drinks. <sighs> so I was like, OK, I'll do it. Knowing that you had a voice
2: or not well, at all? Or,
0: you know, I mean, I, I knew some songs and, yeah. I, and I was. Did they know that? Uh, I don't think, you? you know, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, I actually ran into this guy years afterwards and told him this story. And he was like oh boy I guess I was just trying to like get out of paying for the drinks because I thought you would refuse you know? <laughs> um, but um, as yeah, fate would have it yeah as fate would have it I happened to know some tunes and so I, I talked to the piano player and we realized that we knew uh, this Billie Holiday song in common and we figured out a key which one uh, God Bless the Child which is uh, you know I'm, I'm a huge Billie Holiday fan and I guess I guess uh, you know early in college I discovered her and, and became a big fan of hers Uh uh-huh. but um, so I sang this song, and the piano player was like, oh, you know, that's pretty good. You should come back on Tuesday nights. We have an open mic night here once a week. And so I started doing that, and I think, I think partly because... Um, I wasn't in school and I I was just working, working, working all these different jobs to yeah. try to save money. And, you know, not interesting jobs either, like right. waiting tables at the Applebee's <laughs> in Times Square kind of jobs. Cool.
1: You know? Yeah.
2: So. Um, so it was I think for me, it was something to look forward to. Did and- any part of you say, but I'm a filmmaker, not a singer, or you were just ready Ready you know, to go? I
0: just—it was just a cool thing to yeah. do, and
2: and I think it was—you
0: know—I saw it as this adventurous thing of like, oh my gosh, I'm going to sing on a stage <laughs> in a club in New York City. Yeah, golly. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I just thought it was great. Yeah. Um, and I was, you know, I was nervous and I was terrified, and I, you know, all that shyness and that part of me that just wants to blend into the wallpaper came out. Uh-huh. But there was something about the act of singing that really sort of galvanized me and really kind of took my breath away. And I, I think part of it also had to do with, um, you know, when you're working in film, it's You know, it's certainly it's a wonderful thing and it can be very satisfying, but it's a very long process from the initial idea that you have to the finished product. Oh, yeah. And, you know, yeah, anybody who works. Yeah, it could be years. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of other people. It takes a lot of equipment. You know, it's a it's a very long process and you might start something and never get to the end of that Mm -hmm. process. But with music, if you've you know, if you've done your work in advance and you've rehearsed and you've got something prepared, you just you open your mouth and you sing and there it is. You know? yeah. And it was it was very immediate, it was very physical. I think uh-huh. there was something about it that really kind of allowed me to get in touch with my physicality mm-hmm. and and even sensuality in a way that I think I was trying to kind of cover up because it felt dangerous to me. Mm-hmm. And here was a place to sort of allow that to come out that was relatively safe and that it was it was a cool thing to to have in your arsenal of like you know, especially if you're singing blues songs and those, those were the songs that I started to, to learn and to try to find, you know, I, I ended up going to record stores and uh-huh. talking to the other musicians who would come to the the blues jams and be like, wow, I really like that song. Who was that? You know, where do I find more like that? And I, you know, started going to record stores and buying Howlin' Wolf records and Etta James records yeah. and Tina Turner and, you know, all these kind of real sort of you know,
2: gritty mm-hmm. and passionate. Uh, you Is know, it because after singers, singing that you know, Billy song, you realized that that suited you really well? Um, I think it was just because this was a blues club,
0: and it okay. that was a blues jam, yeah. and it was that's what they wanted to hear. It yeah. was the blues open mic, and and that's what sent me to find those kind of songs. But once I did, I realized that I just loved them, and mm-hmm. there was there was something just so emotional and, and so joyful and so funny and, you know, you listen to these old Blues Mama, you know, recordings and, you know, they just have attitude to spare and oh, yeah. I, I think it was actually a cool way of thinking about being a female in the world uh-huh. um, and, you know to have all this sass and this attitude and like you know hey I'm a I'm a big leg woman you know I'm a big fat mama with my meat shaking on my bones every time I shake a skinny girl loses her home and you know just that kind of sass I was just like oh my god you know whose line is that of uh, big mama Thornton maybe you know so so it just just to have that kind of confidence and that kind of swagger. Yeah. I was like I want to be that. And right. I, and I wasn't that, but I was very attracted to it and if I could sort of fake my way into that as I was performing a blues song on stage, uh-huh. then I could kind of pretend to be that and it was it was exciting to me. And then did you feel yourself slowly internalizing that? Yeah, I think after a while, yeah. you know, I was able to kind of own that a little bit more and you know, when you're when you're a musician when you're a singer whatever you start out imitating the people that you love uh-huh. and through that process you find your own thing to do so I definitely borrowed a lot from you know the the people that I admired and you mm-hmm. know Etta James and Al Green and all those people um, but then you also bring something of your own to it and in particular with, with the writing I think I you know I, I saw that there was this template of these cool blues songs to work with um, but I didn't just want to you know, repeat what other people had done. I wanted to try to find something interesting in that. And that's, that's how I started
2: writing songs. Okay. So were you making a little bit of money at these open mics? It was just Not like, at the open mics. No, I mean, nothing. this, nothing, no, uh, you, uh, you know, you,
0: you have to buy a couple drinks in order to kind of, <laughs> allow the club to let you on the stage. Uh-huh. You know? um, but I did meet a lot of musicians um, when I was doing this open mic and I found out about a lot of other open mics and I started going to those. Mm-hmm. And then I met people who would say, hey, why don't you come down? I've got a gig. So I would go to these other clubs and, and I discovered that there was you know this huge, vibrant scene of all this great music being played. A lot of it was blues music. A lot of it was rock and roll music. And, you know, just very interesting from like little singer songwriter cafes of somebody getting up with an acoustic guitar mm-hmm. to like these like sweaty dance bands that would, you know, like sort of precursors of jam band kind of scenes uh-huh. where, you know, you'd have the college kids dancing until 3 a.m. And, um, you know, there was all that going on. And, you know, I met a lot of very, uh, very cool people at that time. I met the Holmes brothers. Uh, I met the guys in Blues Traveler and Spin Doctors. I met Jeff Buckley. Wow. Uh, I met Chris Whit you know they were all kind of on the scene Uh at that time and it was a really uh, it, it was great to be part of that because I think you know for for an artist it's great to have that kind of support of a place to go and Mm -hmm. people to connect with and people to hang out with who want to talk until 3 o'clock in the morning about Robert Johnson and you know Patsy Cline and just whoever you happen to be into and people who want to make mixtapes and and share them with you of like, hey, have you heard
2: this person? Have you heard that person? And just people who are excited about it. Yeah. So when did you start actually getting booked? I mean, when did this become a job? Mm. I guess it was probably you know, six or eight months
0: before I, um, was able to, I mean, I, I, made a little tape and, you know, of me and a few other guys that, you know, we, I was like, let's put a band together. Yeah, uh-huh. let's do it. And, you know, we made like this little cassette tape and I would go around to all the clubs and, and, you know, got a whole lot of no's and a whole lot of no's and a whole lot of no's. And then somebody had a cancellation and called me up last minute and said, if you can, you know, come down with your band X night, then we'll give you this gig. So I did Were that. Were doing original stuff? Uh, It was mostly blues. It was a few original songs in there that were, you know, heavily influenced by, you know, the blues. Uh Um, And uh, so we did this one gig at, uh, what was the place called? Wonderland Blues Bar. And it was on 2nd Avenue and 29th Street, I think, at the time. Okay. Um, And that was my first gig in New York. And I was... Stay thrilled and be terrified. Yeah. Um, and I remember I was, you know, I was still working uh, some day jobs and I had like an office job as a receptionist. And I remember just like having to go and be sick every chance, like for three or four times during that day that, you know, the gig gig was that night. And uh-huh. I just, I was so, so nervous. agitated that I couldn't keep, you know, my lunch down. <laughs> um, but it, uh, know, that, it, it actually went good. You yeah. know, and I was, you know, this was, this was in, in the times where I, you know, I was so terrified that I could barely open my eyes on stage. And, you know, I was grabbing onto the mic stand for dear life as the one thing between me and the audience. And, yeah. you know, if you're a guitar player, you have this thing in front of you that uh-huh. sort of feels like a security blanket. Right. But if you're a singer, you don't have that. So, it, you know, it it was hard and and it was very stressful. But Again, it was there was something about it that just, you know, felt like I was releasing a part of myself that, you know, wasn't able to be expressed in any other, you know, in any other place. Yeah. So then that led to more gigs? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the the person who booked the shows was there that night and said, well, you know, we have a couple other nights next month if you want to come down. And, you know, I, I will say I made sure that everyone I knew knew about this show so that there was a good crowd there because uh-huh. ultimately Smart. that's what the club owner wants. You know, they they totally. may like your music, but if only three people show up, they're not going to book you again. Right. So you kind of have to make sure that everybody knows about it and you can draw a crowd. So uh-huh. Um, so that's, you know, so then we started doing more nights in this club. And then once I had some, you know, bookings at this club, I went back to the other clubs that had said no to me. <laughs> and I was like, hey, we're playing at this show. And, you know, so I, I was able to kind of leverage that into Yeah, you had some playing. business smarts about you. Well, yeah, you kind of have to treat it like that. Totally. Um, or at least I felt I did. And, um, and also, you know, once I was doing that for a while. Um, I met a guy named Paul Rosselli, who had been a classmate of mine in film school. Um, And he was like, wow, I'd I'd really like to work with you. And he started helping me and and being, you know, sort of a nominal manager. And I got to the point where I was, you know, doing really well and playing four, five, six nights a week in New York and was able to quit my day job. And he was like, you know, this is great to do this in New York, but you really need to start branching out and going to other places. So... Mm. So you know, then we started playing Boston and Philly and Burlington, Vermont, and Buffalo and Schenectady, and you know, just any place really that yeah. would have us. Uh, yeah. Washington D.C. and and uh, started making this into like a regional. Regional thing. Uh huh. Had you made an album
2: of yourselves? Or? Um.
0: You know, I. I really kind of only did it in response to the audience requesting something to buy. Yeah. You know, they were like, "We, where are your records? We going right. to buy your record." I was like, "Oh, I guess I should probably make <laughs> one." <laughs> so we had a, a recording uh, made, uh, like a sound truck, come to one of our shows uh-huh. at the at Delta 88 on Eighth Avenue, and um, and record the live show and then we you know made cassettes and cds and sold those uh, really just out of the trunk just like the classic thing that people yeah. used to do and that's how we you know made enough gas money to get from one place to another in the van and you know maybe buy a hotel once in a while and uh-huh you know. so it sounds like
2: it was hard but probably a lot of fun
0: Yeah, it was. It was hard. I mean, you know, I was in my 20s, so I was doing things back then that, you know, sleeping on the floor of the van when you're driving back from Buffalo that you drove to that day to do the one gig because, you know, the bass players got another gig in New York the next night. And And you could actually
2: sleep that way because in your 20s you can do things like that. You can do
0: stuff like that. (laughs) And, you know, it's uncomfortable and it's hard, but it's also exciting. Mm -hmm. And it just felt really, it just felt so real to me. I just felt like, I was doing something real and I was actually, you know, you're, you're in front of an audience and you're with your fellow musicians and Mm -hmm. you're, you know, you're playing these shows and people are responding to you and everybody's having a good time. And maybe you're really moving people with something that you do. And I mean, that's, that's real, you know? And I, if, if it had ended there, I would have felt like that was a real satisfying chapter in my life.
2: Yeah. But another crazy chapter happened. So (laughs) when did you get signed by a label? How did that happen? Um, Let's see, I think
0: we were playing in Philly at a club there and a guy named Rob Hyman uh, was in the audience. And, you know, I had been sort of trying to... You know, make some inroads and see if there were any labels interested, and you know, mm-hmm. somebody knew somebody who knew somebody and right. would invite somebody down to the gig, and you know, none of that kind of panned out. Um, and and you start to become a little bit leery of that. Like the first couple times, you're like, Wow, well, this is awesome. We're going to get signed <laughs> totally. to such and so. And then you know, when that doesn't happen four or five times, you're like, Yeah, all right. You know, that guy just really wanted to hit on me, so <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> whatever. Um, so you start to take it all with a grain of salt. Yeah. Um, but we were in Philly. And we had done this show, and uh, Rob Hyman came backstage, and he was very excited. He was like, "Wow, I you know I think what you're doing is great, and you know I'm I'm in this band called the Hooters, and and you know la 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 la, and I know this guy who's looking to sign people, and I was like, oh great, cool, you know, um, and really didn't think anything of it until I. Um, got a call to meet with a guy named Rick Chertoff. and I went up to his offices. and He had in, indeed a very impressive office in a big high rise office building, and he indeed, you know, was like a, a record guy and had just, uh, I think he had just produced a big hit for Sophie B Hawkins, uh, and yeah. he had produced Cindy Lauper's first record, which you know, of course, I knew and mm-hmm. and loved Cindy and still do. And uh, so I was like, oh, this is a real guy. Yeah. <laughs> and we sat in his office and just really just talked about music for like 90 minutes it was one of those situations where just kind of nerded out yeah we and and we really you know I could tell that he really loved music and we just started talking about you know people that we loved Mm -hmm. in common and and what it was like to do music and and what it was all about and you know kind of got a little philosophical and and uh I just I just felt like he was a real guy Mm -hmm. and um and I I, I thought, wow, well, this is nice. I don't know if this is going to amount to anything, um, but it was cool to meet this guy. Yeah. Um, but it turned out that he really was interested, and he signed me to his label, which was a subsidiary of Mercury Records at the time. Wow. Yeah, and that's how I got my first record that's deal. Record I, yeah.
2: <laughs> so did the yeah. guys in the band stay with <clears throat> you? Uh, well, the guy,
0: uh, Rob Hyman, who had come uh, to the show in Philly, he uh, was and is a member of a band called The Hooters, mm-hmm. and they um, are a great band out of Philly and uh, have uh, great musicians, great writers. And what uh, Rick proposed to me was that we would go into the studio with Rob and with Eric Bazilian, who is the guitar player, multi instrumentalist from The Hooters, mm-hmm. and you know write some tunes and just kind of vibe out and see what we could come up with. And yeah. we sort of had as as our uh, ideal, uh, the record music from Big Pink, which was made by the band, of course, yeah. and uh, you know a lot of people see that as a touchstone, and and we did as well, um, and we we loved the idea of the process of mm-hmm. you know you get together in a big house and everybody's you know you come you get you have breakfast together and then you write a tune and then you go out and tell us the football and then you come back and you write another tune and you know that kind of that kind of scene. So so I went to Philly um, and basically spent. You know, I, I would go home to New York on the weekends, but I spent all day, every day, five days a week in Philly uh-huh. um, at their studio, and we, you know, worked on songs and worked on songs and worked on songs. And and you know, I I think it was a interesting um, an interesting synergy because there, you know, the Hooters music is very much steeped in American music, whether it's blues or whether it's you know Appalachian music or uh, you know they have a, a, a great. Facility for that and a great knowledge for that Mm -hmm. knowledge of that so that we connected in that way. And I, you know, having been this film student, um, I had this, this way of wanting to observe things where, you know, in film, you you don't want to tell people what they're supposed to be seeing, you want to show them. Mm -hmm. So I, I was interested in painting pictures with lyrics. And that's what I was trying to do. So I think that combined, you know, that that lyric idea combined with the voice that I had, and the fact that I had, you know, come up and learned how to sing singing soul music and blues music and uh, had that kind of emotional quality to it. I think it was a real uh, a real nice connection that we made and uh, we wrote all the songs for the Relish album.
2: Okay. Yeah. So, what was it like from your perspective <laughs> mm. to have that album do what it did because from my perspective, I was, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, 13 I think when it came out and I didn't know who you were and then all of a sudden I knew who you were and you were on TV every day and that song was everywhere yeah. every second. Did that explode your life? Um, in in some ways it did. Yeah. yeah, I mean the the record was
0: out um, for a while before uh-huh. one of us became um, this sort of thing of the moment. Okay. Um, and so was it not
2: the first single it, off of the album? No, it wasn't
0: the first single off of the album. Um, and it you know we we were kind of like in the beginning the record came out and you know myself and the people in my road band um, were just doing gigs and we were just basically kind of doing the same thing that we had been doing yeah you know maybe we were going a little bit further afield and the record company was like oh we want you to go in and talk to this person and mm-hmm. that person i was doing a lot more interviews i was doing a lot more radio station stuff um but we were just kind of doing what we had been doing um and i was happy with that and i was like this is cool you know this is great um you know playing a little bit larger places yeah. and I, I liked that uh and it was exciting to have a record out huh um but then the, you know, one of us became this, you know, this big hit and we made the video for it and it's, it started to kind of have a life of its own. Yeah. And as you say, it, it sort of felt like, you know, suddenly every, you know, I was on TV like five or 10 times a day and, you know, the Grammy nominations came in and I got a whole bunch of Grammy nominations yeah. and, was it you know, three,
2: three nominations, four nominations.
0: Well, the record got seven. The record got seven. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, So it was, it was a lot. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, and you know, like your picture on the paper all all over the place and, and it was a lot. And on, on the one hand, of course I was really excited to, you know, to get that kind of recognition. Yeah. Um, And I thought that even though the, the song One of Us was a little bit
2: anomalous, it was a little bit different than the rest of what was on the record. It's funny. It's anomalous from the record and just from you in general, mm-hmm. kind of as an artist. Yeah, I mean it, it's
0: it's a pop song, and yeah. it's a very interesting pop song in that it talks about religious faith and it talks about God, mm-hmm. and it's you know it's it not every
2: some feathers right.
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, there were people who loved the song, and there were people who absolutely hated it, yeah. and you know I got like death threats, and you know we had how was it received back home? And, Did uh,
2: your You know, some hear people, <laughs> yeah,
0: you know, some people liked it, and then other people, like you know people that knew my mom, you know, would like, well, you know, we were discussing your daughter's song with our (laughs) church group and we decided we don't like it. (laughs) So, uh, you know, it seemed like everybody had an opinion uh, in that moment. And um, I mean, yeah, it was great. It was also really difficult just personally, because I, I did not like that feeling of, um, always having people like like people would follow me down the street and you know I'd be just like in the deli trying to buy tampons or whatever and you know somebody's like you know coming up and or like chasing me down the
2: aisle or something it just it was just weird you know because what I remember from the video is just your face yeah (laughs) close up (laughs) Right? I yeah. Mean, uh, thinking
0: back, that probably wasn't such a good move. No, it was a great
2: video. <laughs> but like, yeah, you, there was no mistaking you. If you yeah. had seen that video, you're easily spottable. On the yeah, yeah. It's funny.
0: I was having this conversation with Cheryl Crow where she was like, you know, I like she's she sold way more records than I did and was more famous than me but she, you know for some reason she was not as easily recognizable i mean she's kind of yeah. she's a little bit short she's a little bit slight you know you can she can pull a hoodie on and put sunglasses right. on nobody knows it's her <laughs> but i guess because of that video it's just like here's my face yeah. look at my face for the next 3 minutes you know you guys very recognizable yeah. Well, yeah she was maybe she like, was a little like earlier a or yeah or so before yeah a little before yeah funny so that so, was weird. And yeah. I, I honestly do not miss those days at all. Yeah,
2: so. I'm sure. So, that, but you know, it affords you all these opportunities, right? Oh, absolutely. No, you so, know, I, I cannot look back on that with anything but right. but, but then but have to decide where you know? to go after that. Because if that's not the thing that you want to keep replicating, even mm-hmm. though it's the thing that has been most successful so far, I imagine you had a lot of people in your ear saying, we need 10 more of those. Yeah, of course.
0: And, yeah you know it just it it, it that was not going to happen because right. well it, well first of all i didn't write that song eric yeah. eric wrote the song and uh you know and it's a, it's a wonderful song mm-hmm. and um but i you know it, it was not something that i was going to be able to like you know sit at home for a month and come up with another you know, thing like that. And, yeah. you know, I did, I tried to make a follow-up to the Relish album for a long time yeah. and turned things into the record company that they rejected and they didn't really? like. And, um, yeah, and it that was also, I had like, I was like the poster child for the sophomore slump where, you know, you, you're just going along and you do what you think is cool and you make this record mm-hmm. and everybody likes it. And then suddenly you're supposed to, You know, be this person or do this thing that everybody wants you to do, and you have a lot of expectations, and, you know, not the least of which you're putting a lot of expectations on yourself because suddenly you're like, oh, wow, I'm a famous artist. So I I must be really awesome at this. So I better come (laughs) up with something genius. And when you sit down in front of a, you know, piece of blank paper with that expectation of it's all gotta be genius then that's pretty intimidating. That's then, you know, pressure. suddenly you, you know, you think of all the million things that you need to do, like pick up the dry cleaning and, <laughs> right. you know, clean out the bathtub with the I'll toothbrush. Be a toothbrush. in and a couple
1: yeah.
2: hours.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think I messed myself up. Just you know, mentally with that kind of pressure, in yeah. addition to what you know the the executive people were looking for, which right. I mean, I don't blame them. If if I had been in their position, I'd been That's like, yeah, hey, let's let's get some more of that because that works.
2: Yeah. So how did you get yourself out of that rut? How would you get back in it?
0: Um, well, you know, it, t- it took a long time. Um, I ended up working with a really great produ- producer named Mitchell Froom, uh, and we did a record out in L.A. Uh, called Righteous Love, and uh, worked a bit writing my own material. Worked a bit with a guy named Joseph Arthur, who's an excellent songwriter, and I still know him and i am friendly with him. Mm-hmm. And we put that record out. But that was, you know, when that record came out, it was maybe five years after Relish had come out. Mm-hmm. So at that point, you know, people were just kind of like, eh, Joan, who? You know, like <laughs> <laughs> it, it, the moment had passed. Yeah. So it was kind of like going back to square one in right. a way. And, uh, you know, in, in a sense, I'm still sort of doing that thing that I was doing before the huge, uh, you know, success happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, the Relish album opened a lot of doors for me that would not have been opened. And a lot of people know about me because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the audience that I've developed um, has almost been uh, like a different kind of thing like there was the Relish audience and some of those people are still in my audience and they'll still buy the records and still come to the shows yeah. but a lot of the people who have stuck with me were the ones who were around before or who liked the stuff on the Relish album that was different and that was yeah. rootsier and, or, or came to or, or saw as you as you mentioned the Standing in the Shadows of Motown mm-hmm. or have seen a live show like a friend brought them to a live show and they're like wow I only knew you from that one song and this is a whole other thing which I really like so, so it's kind of in a way that was a little bit of a blip in my you yeah. know sort of slow <laughs> career epic growth blip. yeah
2: <laughs> the epic blip totally which, you know. well how old were you <coughs> when relish came out I was 30 so 30. I okay. uh, I was a late bloomer no I I wonder sense. if yeah. you would have processed that differently if you had been 20 When that happened to you Oh god You know I might have You know Like that you had the maturity To say "All right, this was really successful But I still I'm going to be true To what I want to do And not just trying To replicate this Well honestly I think I think I probably Did chase my tail To try and replicate it For a minute But it
0: You know it just wasn't happening you yeah know? so you know you I mean, just, just it looking... comes to a point where you're just like well <laughs> yeah I'm, you am know, gonna have to you guys are gonna have to love me anyway for who I am instead of her who you know this other thing that you thought I was yeah you know? so
2: but were you tr- were you trying to write songs that sounded like that album were you changing your style your voice at all N- not really I think I was just trying to
0: come up with something that I thought was interesting and yeah. you know at the time I was really into qawwali music there's mm-hmm. a great Kuali singer Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan who I was a huge fan of and I was trying to maybe incorporate some of that style of music into what I was doing Yeah, um, you know I think I just you know, was searching and searching and searching, and and came up with some things that I thought were interesting, yeah. um, but you know, then I would send them off to the record
2: company, and they were like, "Uh, no, we don't like this." So, well, you made a lot of albums since then, so yeah, that's true. You got back in the group somehow. I did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What feels most fulfilling <clears throat> for you now, from all the stuff that you work on? Hmm.
0: Well, you know, I have to say the the most recent um, record of original music that I uh-huh. put out, um, which came out in twenty fourteen, was called Love and Hate. Uh, I actually co produced it with Jack Petrozelli who uh, was in that band where we toured the Relish record, and I've known oh him for many many years. Um, he, that I think is one of the best records I've done, and some of the best songwriting that I've done. So, yeah. so you know, just to to be able to have that feeling that as an artist, even though you've been doing this for a while. You still have, you know, deeper to dig and there's more that you can do mm-hmm. and you, you can get better at what you're doing.
2: Um, that's that's an exciting feeling. Yeah. And I'm super excited to see you live tonight for the first time, because yeah. I have a feeling you're one hell of a live performer from the YouTube clips I've seen. Well, thank <laughs> but you. I'm sure being I in the room will be it. a whole new thing. I do enjoy it. Yeah. yeah. Well, tonight's going to be a little bit of different thing
0: because um, we you know, this this show at the Carlisle. Honestly, i never in a million years thought I was going to be playing the Cafe Carlisle. Yeah, I was you know. going to ask you how you feel about it. It's an interesting crowd for you. Well, it's For just, anybody. No, it's a room that I always associated with, you know, people like Andrea Marcovici or Betty Buckley or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's it's a cabaret room. And, yeah. you know, when I've played in New York, I, I play different places normally. Uh-huh. But, you know, I went to uh, Keith Cotton, who is with me as well. Uh, He was playing with Buster Poindexter there, Uh and I went to see them, and uh, I was like, wow, this is cool, and I saw Buster's show, which is great and funny and interesting, and he's such a great musicologist, you know, he comes up with all these great tunes. Uh, And then the next day, we got a call from the Carlisle saying, would Joan like to come and sing here? So I was like, oh, okay, well, my initial response is... Why would you want me to do that (laughs) Um, But then I was like well maybe I can turn this Into something cool and something interesting And you know for a while I've been thinking About uh, doing a, A series of albums a songbook series in in the way that Ella Fitzgerald did a, a series of albums by different songwriters. She mm-hmm. she did, like, you know, the Cole Porter songbook or the Gershwin songbook yeah. or, you know, whoever. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm fortunate to be able to do is to interpret other people's material in addition to writing my own. So I thought that would be a very cool way to, to do it, is to do a songbook series. So I thought this would be the perfect opportunity to try this out because... <clears throat> because the Carlisle, you know, it's it's a room where people do, you know, the American Songbook, and they mm-hmm. they interpret other people's material. So I thought this would be a a cool way to turn this this show into something unique. And you know, we chose to do the material of Bob Dylan partly because Speaking there's Big a jillion songs to choose from. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, and you know, you kind of you kind of can't go wrong when you're picking songs from Bob Dylan. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Very, so very uh, cool. So we've been really, uh, of course, uh, you know, last night I was like, what have I done? Oh, my God. <laughs> putting together an entire new show in basically in the space of a week and a half, uh, you know, has been a lot of work. And yeah. I, have to, I have to thank Jack and Keith for putting in so much time and effort.
2: Does it span all eras of Dylan?
0: It does. Yeah. We're, we're getting dipping into some. You know, fairly recent stuff, uh, stuff from Time Out of Mind and Oh Mercy, which are my favorite records of his. Uh And then going back to uh, another side of Bob Dylan and, you know, and and a lot of stuff in between.
2: Yeah. Very cool. I imagine it's intimidating to cover Dylan, but also because he completely reinvents his own stuff constantly Mm -hmm. that at least there's not like only one way For his songs to be done, absolutely, and you know, I'm never going to sound like Bob Dylan, so
0: I don't have to try to sound like Bob Dylan. (laughs)
1: Right.
0: Um, So that's off the table. So that's yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So that sort of frees you to just play around, and I mean, that's really the job of the interpreter is to find out where's that sweet spot where someone else's song and your voice and your sensibility intersect in that place where it's really just going to allow the song to bloom and yeah. you know you you really want to choose that spot carefully because if you get it right then it just it opens up for you like a flower and it's mm-hmm. you don't have to push it or work at it it's it's just right there so yeah. that's that's what we've been really trying to do is find those moments in his catalog uh where it's just this beautiful little intersection
2: nice now i said we were going to come back to it so now we have to come back to it All right. as a final note okay raising an 11 year old daughter. Yeah. (laughs) What, what lesson can you take from everything we've just discussed that you hope to impart to her as she enters into these scary years of Mm. middle school? Yeah. I mean, we, we certainly
0: think a lot about that. Um, um, I mean, she's been talking a lot about popularity recently Uh and, um, you know, that's something that, you know, I, I think, you know, a kid is going to worry about that stuff because all the other kids around are worried about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we can say a lot of stuff to her that she's going to be like, oh, I know, I know, I know. Um, but I think she does hear the things that we say, even mm-hmm. if she in in that moment rejects it or thinks that she doesn't agree with it. Yeah. it. It kind of gets in there. So we, you know, we try to talk to her about you know, popularity is cool, but it's it's more important to have friends and, you know, who are real friends and to do your own thing and to really be your authentic self. Mm-hmm. And then if you can do that, you may not be the most popular kid. You may not be the least popular kid, but at least you're going to know that the friends that you have are real friends and, not, and people are not going to want to be around you just because you happen to be the popular kid and that those are the relationships that are satisfying.
2: Yeah. It's good advice for an artist, too.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You can do the thing that everybody is rushing to and, you know, wants from you, or you can be your authentic self, and then that's going to draw the people to you that will stay with you. There you go. Wow, that's such a beautiful metaphor. Look at that. Eh? So
2: nice. Look at us. Well, the authentic Joan Osborne, <laughs> thank you very much. This is awesome. Um, you're going to play a song for us now? Yeah, we're going to
0: play a song what for What are you going to play? Well, I thought we'd start with this uh, song called Buckets of Rain.
2: Oh, yeah. A little yeah. ditty I think I've heard of before. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Thank you, Joan. Thank you.
3: Buckets of rain, buckets of tears Got all them buckets coming out of my ears Buckets of moonbeams in my hand you got all the love, honey baby, I can stay I've been meek and hard like an oak Seen pretty people disappear like smoke Friends will arrive, friends will disappear me, honey, baby, I'll be here. I like your smile and your fingertips, I like the way you look. Everything about you is bringing me misery I ain't no monkey But I know what I like I like the way you love me Strong and slow I'm taking you with me Honey baby when I go Life is sad Life is a bust All you can do is do what you must You do what you must do And you do it well I do it for you Honey baby can't you tell i do it for you Honey baby can't you tell
0: This is Highway 61 Revisited
3: God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. God said, no. Abe said, what? God said, you can do what you want, Abe. But next time you see me coming, oh, you better run. Said, where you want this killing done? God said, down on Highway 61. Well, Georgia Sam had a bloody nose, The well fed apartment wouldn't give him no clothes. Only one Father, things that weren't right. My complexion, she said, is uh, much too white. He said, Come over here and step into the light. He said, Oh, yes, you're right. Let me tell the second mother this has been done. But the second mother was with the seventh son, and they were both down on Highway 61. very bored. He was trying to create the next world war. Found a promoter who nearly fell off the floor. I said, I never engaged in this kind of thing before, but yes, I think it can very easily be done. We'll just put some bleachers out in the sun and have it all time. He's 61.